Good morning, guys. How are you all feeling this morning? Tired, right? I know it's Wednesday. It's sort of that time of the week where you're beginning to fade a little bit, but you can't, okay? I need you to dig deep with me this morning. Um, this morning is the only passage all week that we're going to be in the Old Testament, okay? So we've got a little bit more work to do this morning, but I am incredibly excited about trying to explain this passage. Uh, so you've got to work with me. If the person beside you thinks, oh, Old Testament, no, right? You've got to like dig in the ribs and then you can bring the fist up to the nose, right? Waking them up. No, don't actually do that. I'm probably getting loads of trouble and Dave will tell me off. But please, please, please stay with me this morning, okay? I know you're tired. I know it's easy to drift off, but you've listened incredibly well so far. So let's, let's keep at it, okay? Let me begin um, by making a statement that I think is true of every single human being on the face of the planet, right? Everyone worships something, okay? Everyone worships something. I don't know what you think about when you hear that word worship or what you think it means. It derives from an old English word, the word worthship. And really it means giving our ultimate worth to something or to someone. And everyone gives the ultimate worth to something or to someone in their lives. Everyone has something or someone that they center their lives upon. There was an American author called David Foster Wallace. He wasn't a Christian believer, but he was asked to give a graduation speech at a high school, so people your age, in 2005. And at that high school graduation, he gave a a short speech, but something that was incredibly profound and has made him pretty famous, actually. This is what he said in his graduation speech. In the day-to-day trenches of life, There is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Those are incredible words, I think. They give us a really deep and profound insight into the human heart. Tragically, just a few years after saying these words, David Foster Wallace took his own life. As far as we can tell, he never did come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, even though he had such a powerful and poignant insight into the reality of the human heart. Understanding that you and I are worshiping beings, not just thinking beings, but that we worship things and people with our hearts is a really important biblical idea to understand. We have been made in the image of God, and so we have been made to give the ultimate worth to our Creator. That's part of our DNA. Remember what we said on Monday, quoted St. Augustine, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Everyone worships. We have been made 
to worship God, and our lives will only make sense when we center them on Him. We're going to spend most of our time this morning thinking about what it means to be part of a community that worships and what ought to be our priorities as we gather for corporate worship as the people of God. But before we do that, I want to ask you to think about your own life. I want to ask you to think about a couple of individual questions when we come to think about worship. When you think about your life, what is it that you are centering your entire existence on? What is it that is most important to you in the whole world? What are your very deepest desires and longings? One of the ways that sometimes I I help people to think about this is to use uh, one of my favorite um, scenes from from Harry Potter. Any Harry Potter fans here? Bound to be some Harry Potter fans, right? Um, So Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which is a great book and a terrible movie because none of them can act, right? But in, in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, there's a scene where Harry discovers the mirror of Erised. You know that one? He finds the mirror in the dungeon. J.K. Rowling's a genius, by the way, right? Erised is desire, spelt backwards. You knew that, right? Really clever. So Harry looks into the mirror of Erised, and when he looks into the mirror, what does he see? He sees his mom and dad, him with his parents, okay? He is seeing the desires and longings of his heart. And he's super excited, and he goes and gets Ron. He's like, Ron, Ron, come and see them. Come and see my mom and dad. And when Ron stands in front of the mirror, He doesn't see Harry's mom and dad. What does he see? He sees himself winning the Quidditch Cup. He sees himself as the house captain. He sees the deepest desires of his heart. And that's how the mirror of Erised works. Whenever someone stands in front of it, they see what it is that they are longing for more than anything else. You think about your life. You think about your deepest desires and longings. You're standing in front of the mirror of Erised. What is it that you would see? I don't know. There's like 300 people in here we would each see different things. Some of you will see yourself as a billionaire living in LA with a fleet of Range Rovers, right? Some of you will see yourself opening your results next Thursday or the Thursday after thinking, yes, yes, I got in, or I did okay. Some of you will see yourself having the perfect family or the perfect partner. Some of you will see yourself standing proudly having just one love island. I don't know what it is that you might see whenever you look into the mirror of Erised, But the answer to that gives you a really unique insight into the deepest longings of your heart and soul. It will give you an insight into what it is that you are really living for and what it is that you really worship. Remember we said everyone worships something. And I want to suggest to you that the message of the Bible is trying to tell us over and over and over again that there is only one person that we should worship. There is only one person who can satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. There is only one person who can make sense of our lives. There is only one person who will actually come through on his promises. And perhaps most importantly, there is only one person in the whole world who can forgive us for the times when we mess it up. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is to be the object of our worship. And that only by centering our lives on him, both individually and corporately as his church, only then will we grow, we're thinking about yesterday, into the people that he wants us to be. So for the second part of what I want to do this morning, I want to spend some time thinking about what it might look like for us to be part of a worshiping community of God's people. What it might look like as we gather as God's people to 
worship him and center our lives on him individually and corporately together. And to help us do that, we're going to read a passage from the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So if you want to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8, I'll give you a few minutes to find it. Nehemiah chapter 8, it comes after Ezra and before Esther, before Job. If you've got the Job, you've gone too far, you can flick back a little bit. And we're going to read the first 12 verses. And I'm going to read it slowly, okay? Because it's probably pretty unfamiliar. In fact, when you're reading this, it feels like you're reading something from another world, okay? So I want you to work really, really, really hard when we're reading this. I want you to try and picture the scene. I don't just want the words to sort of wash over you. I want you to imagine what's going on here because it is absolutely incredible what's happening here. It's an incredible scene. So Nehemiah chapter eight, <clears throat> this is the word of God so you can trust it completely, okay? When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud, from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, beside him on his right stood Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send home to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. 
for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Okay, so keep your Bibles open. We're gonna think about what it means to be part of the worshiping people of God. And this passage is really gonna help us as we do that. The context here is important for us to understand. These events take place almost at the end of the Old Testament. They take place after a big event called the exile. God's people have returned from exile in Babylon. So chronologically, although Ezra and Nehemiah are sort of in the middle of the Old Testament, chronologically, the events described for us in Nehemiah are happening right at the very end of the Old Testament, okay? And actually, if you look really, really closely at verse one, one of the things you notice that's happening here as the people are gathering is that the people are demanding that the word of the law be read to them. So we've got Ezra the scribe here. He's the one who's really responsible for the spiritual oversight of the people. He's attempting to teach the people and read the book of the law to them. Nehemiah is here as well. He's sort of more the administrator of God's people at this point. He has been responsible for bringing the people back from exile, building the walls of Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt at this point. The temple has been rebuilt at this point. Nehemiah chapter eight, the events described for us here are really a big service where they are celebrating that, okay? It is a moment of corporate worship. There's probably about 50 thousand people here. We know that from doing the maths from chapter seven. And the people have gathered as one people, one man, it says, one humanity have gathered in the center of the city. And they gather expectantly. They gather expectantly. Right from the start, one of the things that we're meant to notice is that their approach to the Bible, the word of the law, is one of humility and reverence. They are hungry for God. They want to hear from God. They want the word of God to be at the very center of their religious and civic life because they know that without it, they're absolutely lost. And it's not just that they know it in an intellectual sense. They know it in their experience. These people have been the exiled ones. They have lived out of God's place for a while. Now they've been brought back. And part of the reason that they've been in exile is because they have rejected the word of God at one point. And so now they want it to be right at the very center of their corporate life together. And so one of the things we've got to think about as we think about how all of this speaks into our context today, I think we've got to very simply point out that as God's people, when we come together to listen to God's word, we ought to do so with a real expectation that God himself wants to meet with us. So in terms of application, let me ask you a question. What might it look like for you and I to gather expectantly around the word of God? What might it look like for you and I to gather expectantly around the word of God? At the very least, I think that means as we approach church or as we approach times of corporate worship like this, we should be approaching these times 
with our aerials tuned up, right? Not thinking, oh, flip the talk. I'm gonna get through the talk. We should be approaching these times really, really attuned to what God wants to say to us. We should be approaching these times prayerfully. I don't know how it is you, you approach your church on a Sunday morning, right? Chances are you're probably arriving maybe pretty close to the wire. You're sort of on your phone. The minister gets up to preach and you're kind of thinking, hmm, you've got a couple of minutes here to grab my attention, otherwise I'm, I'm out of it. Most of us spend more time complaining and moaning about the preaching and the preacher than we do praying for the preaching and the preacher. But if we're to gather expectantly as God's people, then we will be gathering those times praying that God will speak to us through his word, through the person that's gonna be preaching it to us. And with all of that in mind, as we gather together as God's people, one of the things we've got to understand is that we are not gathering for a lecture, okay? There is a difference between a lecture and a sermon. A lecture, the primary goal of a lecture is to give you new information, to fill your head. But the primary goal of a sermon is to transform your heart. And God will do that as he feeds information into your head, right? Discipleship is deeply embedded in the mind. I am convinced of that. But the goal of a sermon is not just to fill your head with more information. The goal of a sermon is to transform your heart. And so preachers, when they are preaching, don't just want people to know more about God. They want people to meet with the living and the true God. When I've been getting ready for this week, I don't just want you to know more about what it means to be part of the church. I want you to meet with the Lord of the church. And I believe that as we look at his word, we do that. It's why I'm absolutely convinced that the high point and the focal point of all true biblical corporate worship is preaching. This is the primary means by which God wants to transform you. As we listen to the word of God being preached together as the people of God, he will change us. He will change us. So here's part of my responsibility as a youth worker, right? It's to train people like you to listen really well to preaching, to preaching. And there's lots of people who will think that's daft. You can't get young people to listen to preaching. Nonsense, look at you, right? You're listening to preaching. If you're gonna be in the church for any length of time, you're gonna to have to learn to listen to preaching because this is how God wants to speak to us. So how we listen really, really matters. And we'll say more about that as we go along. And so when we come to think about worship and our times and experiences of corporate worship in particular, one of the things I want you to understand, and I think this passage is making it really, really clear, what's at the center? The center is the book of the law here. The center for us as New Testament Christians is the word of God, the complete, full scripture. What's at the center? We've got to think more about preaching being at the center of worship than we do about singing being at the center of worship. Now, I love singing, right? I love it. I've loved our times here together. I've loved the times in the evening in the, in the big tent. I love it. I love getting to do that. But actually, in the Bible, preaching is at the center of corporate worship. Why? Because what God has to say to us is way, way, way more important than what we have to say to him. Now, what we have to say to him is important. 
And we want to be saying things to God and about God that are true. We don't want to be telling lies about God, right? But what we have to say to God is not as important as what he has to say to us. That's why in the Bible, when it thinks about worship, the center of worship in the Bible is preaching. I want you to redress the balance a little bit in your head, okay? We'll keep going. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 2, there's a little line in there that has something very important, I think, to teach us about the intergenerational nature of corporate worship. So it says, on the, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. Why does, why does that little line get included? I mean, it doesn't really add very much to the story. Why is it included? It's included because the writer wants us to understand something about the nature of this corporate gathering. It's not just for adults. It's for all who can understand. The implication here is that there are children and young people who are present at times of corporate worship. I don't know what age they would have been. I imagine actually pretty small probably in that culture. But it's a massive encouragement to me to know that there are children and young people present at this gathering of corporate worship. And so one of the marks of being a growing church member is that we will come expectantly to hear the word of God, but that we will also want others to hear the word of God, and particularly we will want those coming behind us to hear the word of God. You guys have a responsibility in that. You're recipients of it, right? People are trying to bring you along so that you can hear the word of God, but let me tell you, there are people coming after you, and they are looking to you to see how you engage with the word preached. All those little donuts that are run about and on the edge, right, that you're so glad to be away from this week, they are looking to you to see how it is that you engage with the word preached. And so you have a responsibility to set them an example in how you listen. There's a couple of pictures on the screen. I, I really love these pictures. That's me. Get me off the screen. Um, they're a bit hard to read, but it's a picture of a, an Instagram page of a um, preacher in the States called Al Muller. And he, he posted this about a year and a half ago, and it was a picture of a little 12-year-old boy in his church. And underneath it, he just posted, Parents, take note, a great encouragement in worship this morning. A wonderful, faithful family sitting together, sixth grade boy, I think that's like 11, 12, um, with Bible open to the text during preaching. It matters, right? That's what he said. And the one on the, the right-hand side, you can't see it. You can ask me to come and look at it more closely later. But it's the, the sermon notes of a six-year-old child at a Presbyterian church in Leeds, okay? He is there for the sermon. He is listening to what's going on. He can't write J the right way around, right? But he is listening to what's happening during the sermon. We have a responsibility to listen. How we listen really, really matters, so one of the things that I'm really big on when I'm trying to talk to young people about the Bible is to make sure that A, they have a Bible with them, right? And B, that it's open at the passage that we're looking at so that they can follow it along for themselves. So when you come to your church on a Sunday and the minister gets up to preach and he's preaching on Mark chapter one, here's what you gotta do. Open the Bible, Mark chapter one. Try and follow along what he's saying. See if what he's saying is actually there. How we listen really, really matters. Whenever I was a teenager, I, I spent most of my time in church between the ages of 11 and 14. Um, when it came to the sermon, 
The minister was sort of old at that point. In his 60s, he preached for like 45, 50 minutes at a time. Um, and I used to spend the sermons doing my like fantasy league team, right? So this was before you had a smartphone. I just used to like sit with my wee brother and we used to just draw out who we wanted to play in which position. This is when Leeds were in the Premier League. So I was much more like interested in my fantasy league team at that point. But I wasn't at all interested in what the preacher had to say from the front. But my parents kept bringing me and the preacher kept preaching and I'm sure of it, I'm sure the congregation kept praying for me and somewhere along the line, it all clicked, right? Somewhere along the line as about a 15 year old, I came into church and this guy at the front who I I thought was old and boring and preached for too long, somewhere along the line I thought, this is the most interesting thing I've ever heard in the whole world. And I started to listen to preaching. And let me tell you how it worked for me, right? I could not wait. I could not wait to get to church. From one week to the next, I thought, this is the best thing in the whole world. I cannot get enough of this. I cannot get enough of what he's saying. It was as though as he was preaching, God was becoming real to me. And I, can't really, I, I know that that's like theologically problematic to say that, right? But I can't describe it in any other way. I just was captivated by listening to what he was saying. He wasn't saying anything different than what he'd been saying whenever I was doing my fantasy league team. But I was starting to listen and the spirit of God was taking the word of God and making it alive in my heart. And I think from that moment, this 15, 16 year old, I have, I have loved listening to preaching. I've had an appetite to listen to what God has to say to us through his word. How we listen matters. And actually, verse three tells us that they listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse four tells us that there's a platform built for the occasion. Verse five tells us that the people stand in awe as the word is being read and preached. We're not gonna get you to do that this morning. But there is something here about people's posture as they come to worship. They are gathering expectantly and they are listening attentively. I think this ought to be the posture of a Christian when we come to preaching on a Sunday morning. If you take preaching seriously, then let me tell you there's a real sense in which those times that you gather together with the family of God, around the word of God, those are the most important times in your week. Those are the times when God wants to speak to you. There's an old... um, He's dead, <laughs> really dead. He was alive in 1566, so he's really dead, right? There's a, a second generation reformer called Heinrich Bullinger, right? What a name. He wrote something called the Second Helvetic Confession. Church history, by the way, really matters. You should learn some church history. You're not the first generation to be Christians. Church history really matters. He wrote something called the Second Helvetic Confession, and in that, he was writing a little bit about preaching and the importance of preaching, And he said this. This is one of my favorite quotes in all of church history, right? He says, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is preached and received of the faithful. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now that is incredibly important for us 
Because what we're really saying is that when the Bible is opened and preached to us faithfully and clearly by someone who has been called by God and ordained by God to do so, it's not just someone getting up and sharing their thoughts. It is God himself revealing himself to his people. It is God showing up to his people. So someone asks you, right? Did God show up at Livewire today? Did God show up at church today? Answer, was the Bible opened and preached? Same question, right? Same question. Did God show up at church today? Was the Bible opened and preached? Same question. That's what's happening in Nehemiah chapter eight. And that's how we get to meet with God and experience him through his word, okay? That is the center of corporate worship. And so as you come to to listen to a sermon on Sunday, if you're a growing church member, you ought to come gathering expectantly, listening attentively, not thinking, oh, this is my time to relax and, you know, check my WhatsApp groups and, you know, whatever it is that you might be tempted to do during church. It's not the time for that, right? It's a time to sit up, pay attention. God wants to speak to you. If you got a message, right, you got a notification on your phone right now, and it was from God, right? God said, meet me at Tesco in Coleraine this afternoon at four o'clock. I have something really important to tell you, right? You would so go, right? You would freak out a little bit because, like, how did God get my number, right? You would so go. You would want to go and hear a personal message from God, right? None of us would not go to that. Let me tell you, when we gather as the people of God around the word of God, it is as personal as if that were real, right? God wants to speak to you through his word. So gather expectantly, listen attentively, don't tune out because that's how we worship. Last thing, and this is really a talk in and of itself, but we don't have time to to do it this morning. One of the things that, that you'll notice from Nehemiah chapter eight is that the people of God are gathering around the word of God, but it's, it's Old Testament, right? It's Old Covenant. So it's, their experience is different from our experience. Our experience as the New Testament people of God, this side of the cross, as we gather for corporate worship, is different. How is it different? Because what's the center of what we're trying to do? It's Jesus, right? Our worship is to be centered on Jesus, So Ezra here, as he is reading from the book of the law, he's almost certainly reading the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus isn't explicitly mentioned there. But as New Testament believers, our preaching, our worship, our singing, our prayers ought to be centered on Jesus and the cross and his resurrection and what he has done for us in the gospel. If If I could be transported in a time machine to any part of the Bible, it would be, Luke chapter 24, right? We're not gonna read it just now, but in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking on the road with two disciples. It's on the road to a mess and they don't recognize him, but they're talking a little bit gloomily about the death of Jesus because Jesus has risen from the dead at this point, but he's in their presence, but they don't know that it's him. They think Jesus is dead, right? And then eventually Jesus reveals himself to them and one of the things that he does with them, he begins with Moses and all the prophets and he begins to explain to them everything that was said in the scriptures concerning what? Concerning himself. 
himself. So here's what Jesus does with these two disciples. He's walking along the road. He does a Bible study with them, looking at Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, the stuff that Ezra is reading out. And he begins to say to them, see all that stuff in the Old Testament? It's about me. It's about me. It's a really important conviction to have when we come to the Bible. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And so our worship should be centered on Jesus. It's his name that we want to lift up. It's him that we are gathering for. You're not gathering for yourself and your own needs to be met. You're gathering for Jesus. His people in his place seeking to live under his rule and enjoy his presence and bring him glory. Because he is so worth it, right? He is the beautiful one. He is the glorious one. He is absolutely committed to your ultimate good. He is so worthy of our worship. He's the only one who's going to make sense of your life. I'm going to pray for us in in a moment or two, but before we come to pray, um, I would really love it if everybody could just close your eyes and bow your heads for a little moment, and I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. We think that this is really a, a piece of worship liturgy, perhaps a hymn, perhaps a song of some sort that the early church sang together as they gathered for corporate worship. And this, I think, encapsulates perfectly what I was trying to say there at the end about worship being centered on Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, as we gather together here as your people around your word, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in a special way through this book. And Father, we we find that as we read it, at some level it begins to read us and it exposes our sinfulness Lord, in particular, it exposes our lethargy and laziness when it comes to the Bible. It exposes that we take it for granted so, so much. Father, please forgive us for that. Please help us to be people who are hungry for your word and hungry to meet with you and be in your presence as your word is preached. Please help us to gather expectantly in our churches to listen attentively to our ministers and elders and preachers. And Lord, by your grace to be changed 
as we listen to and live in obedience to your word. Help us to worship King Jesus in spirit and in truth today and every single day. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.